Work, workforce, and workplace norms are shaped as much by popularized portrayals as they are by our lived experiences. From sensational headlines, like The Great Resignation, to successful series, like The Office and Silicon Valley, to skits and stories shared on our social media feeds, what we see shapes what we believe. Let's go behind the scenes to discover what's new now and next in the world of work, and we'll challenge the traditions of what it means to live well and to work well. This is Success From Anywhere. Today on Success From Anywhere, we'll meet a medieval French history student whose dream is to make resumes ancient history, and he has 25 million data points to prove it. Please join me in welcoming to the show Josh Millett, founder and CEO of Criteria. Welcome, Josh. Hi, Karen. Thanks for having me. One question I like to start out the show with for every guest, because we talk about work, is what was your first paying job and how did that job inform or inspire your career trajectory? It's a great question. I'm laughing because this is sometimes a question we love asking candidates in our own interviews at Criteria, especially in, uh, in for sales roles. We found that it's really uh, it's really a great question to start off with. It's it's always a concern if someone's first job was at age 27. You know, so my first job uh, growing up, I believe, was uh, working on my uncle's peach farm. So picking peaches, packing peaches. It was a job that I could not do at my current age because uh, in Georgia, in the peach orchards, it's pretty it's pretty hot. And so I don't think I, I would survive in that role today. <laughs> I guess you could say it was the pits. <laughs> I know. You had to have heard that before. You had to have heard that before. I mentioned in the opening your degree in medieval French history. What were you planning to do with that? And do you use any aspect of that now in what you do? What was I thinking? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I did. Uh, at the time, I was thinking I was going to be a professor or a teacher of history uh, somewhere. And I always had a kind of passion for history. And in undergrad, I got hooked when I did a trip to France. So that was kind of what got me into it. And then as grad school progressed, I realized, oh, there's not that great demand for, for this role in the world. And so it was a little bit of a circuitous route, but I found my way to software uh, entrepreneurship. And you've been a serial entrepreneur. Take us through your career to date before we talk about the business that you're in now. And so right out of school, I did have a, a small startup. It was actually in the test preparation space. So it was uh, the idea behind it was trying to make uh, test prep free for things like the SAT and GRE. So we launched the company in the year 2000. So that was a while ago. It was right in the middle of the internet bubble. And I uh, ended up selling the company after a couple of years to a company out in California which is how I got to uh, be out here in California. I was originally on the East Coast. And now you have a business called Criteria. Tell us more about the concept of the business and what inspired you to start it. Yeah, so Criteria is a software business. We like to call ourselves a talent success company, meaning what we do is all about helping companies make better talent decisions, especially around hiring. So specifically, a lot of the tools are around um, how to hire the right people, right? So assessments are a big part of the platform. So our interviewing solutions, video interviewing, which is something that's really taken off during the pandemic, obviously. A lot more companies are doing their interviews remotely or virtually. And so there's a whole suite of two tools oriented around helping companies hire better. And the way I got into it was I was actually the startup I mentioned, the acquirer in that scenario, I moved out to, to LA to, to work for them. 
And somehow after a couple of years, I got involved in hiring, which I was totally unqualified for at the time, I would say. And there was a couple of experiences, but one in particular where I was in an interview with the candidate. And I remember distinctly looking up at the clock on the wall, sort of seven minutes into the hour and realizing that it wasn't a fit on either side. And so that kind of caused me to think about, oh, how could we prevent sort of bad interviews? How, how could you try to avoid all that wasted time with, uh, with interviews where the fit wasn't really good mutually, probably, on either side? So that was sort of the, the kernel of the idea that became Criteria. And say more about how your screening process works. We probably all hear you talk about this and picture some horrendous assessment we've taken that was either inaccurate or so dated we did not believe it possibly create an accurate picture of who we are and our potential. Say more about what kinds of screening criteria are important now. Yeah, great question, because a lot of people are familiar with assessments through things like the Myers-Briggs, which is a really kind of can be an engaging experience to uh, to see your results. But it's based on kind of 80 year old science, so really shouldn't be used in in a modern world for, for hiring or anything like that. So our assessments in particular are pretty pretty varied. So there's all sorts of different types of assessments. So there's aptitude assessments, there's personality assessments. There's also more kind of straightforward like skills assessments. So think about you know, computer literacy or the ability to use Microsoft Excel or something like that. And then there's also recently we've gotten into emotional intelligence as an area as well. We actually acquired a company in Australia that had a great emotional intelligence assessment. And so we're in that area as well. I was just going to say, so the key to sort of all assessments is to develop and validate them in a way that makes them reliable, makes them predictive of outcomes and is based on sound science, most of which is, is drawn from like decades of work in organizational psychology. So as long as you're, as an employer, as long as you're comfortable and have asked the, the partner or the vendor that you're using about the science behind their assessments, they're pretty widely used and accepted at this point as a great way to predict outcomes, especially when you compare them to the more subjective things that companies often use. And I'm sure we'll maybe talk about those later. Some listeners would challenge the idea that you can use an assessment to screen for emotional intelligence. What would you say to those skeptical listeners? Yeah, emotional intelligence is a really interesting area. It's it's relatively new area, you know, in terms of the science behind it. And it's also not universally applicable to all jobs, right? So there's some jobs where it's very important. There's others where you really shouldn't be assessing it because it's not that related to, to job performance. But the emotional intelligence assessment we have is actually game-based. It involves reacting to images of people's faces, making sure that you're emotionally aware, recognizing uh, emotions, properly because that's the sort of first leg of emotional intelligence is kind of being aware of other people's emotions and and uh, reacting appropriately it might surprise listeners to discover your bold statement that resumes are the enemy of candidate diversity say more about that there's a pretty widespread recognition in in the world of hr and the world of hiring today that resumes are limited in terms of the utility but I would go further and say they're actively often the problem in hiring today. And the reason, there's a couple of reasons. One is that they don't work very well. But to your point, the second is that they're really bad for diversity. And if you think about it, it's because I think the, the resume is entirely backward looking, right? If you think about what does a recruiter get out of a resume, right? They generally, and you know, you hear all these sort of terrifying stats about 
the average hiring manager or recruiting spending uh, spending six or seven seconds reading a resume, right? So in that short amount of time, what are you getting from a resume? I think often you're getting or looking for two things. One is some sense of the amount of experience in a given field that, that someone might have or, or might not have. And the second is educational pedigree, like where, where you went to school, uh, where you got a degree from, if you got a degree, etc. And if you think about those two things, there's, there's a couple problems. One is a, a lot of research has shown pretty definitively that the amount of experience you have in a given field for most jobs is not a very good predictor of, of future performance. And the second thing is that educational level or whether you have a, a degree from a good school or not is also, you know, it has some correlation to how, how you're going to do in the workplace, but it's a pretty weak correlation. It's, it's what statisticians would call a weak signal. And there's a lot better signals out there. So for those two reasons, we don't think they work very well. But on the diversity front, if you think about it, they're also, as I mentioned, very backward looking, right? They reflect the opportunity you've had in the past and what you've done in the past. They don't really say anything about your future potential. And if you're trying to build a workforce that is more diverse, right, basing it off of a look backwards is, you know, quite the, quite the wrong approach, I would argue, right? If you're looking for, just to use an extreme example, if you're looking for 10 years experience in a field and you're trying to build a more diverse workforce than you had 10 years ago, well, guess what? You know, modeling your future workforce after what the workforce looked like 10 years ago is not a good idea if you're trying to build a more diverse workforce. So we prefer selection criteria and looking at things that are forward-looking, that highlight potential, ability to learn and grow, to develop, that kind of thing. I'm a big fan of the book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And so many of the concepts you're highlighting show up for me because what we're missing when we only look at someone's past performance is the context for realizing their potential in the future. How do organizations get more proactive? I mean, what should we all be screening for now in this pseudo post-pandemic world of talent? Yeah, that's a great question. And whether you use assessments or other techniques, we think the things you should look for are pretty, pretty constant, right? So we know certain things are predictive almost across the entire job universe, but certainly across a broad swath of it in terms of predicting long-term performance and potential, right? Because too often when people talk about potential, they're sort of using that as an excuse for making subjective decisions, right? Like, oh, I think this person has potential, right? And we, we don't want that either, right? That's going to create as many problems as, as what we have. So I think if you, uh, if you focus on what we call long-term talent signals, right? We know, and this is not going to sound like rocket science, but there's a, a ton of research that shows that people who are smart, who are good problem solvers, who are good learners, who, who learn, digest, and apply new information quickly, as well as things like having a great work ethic, being persistent, having grit, those, those things all tend to correlate with long-term success across a lot of different jobs. So, so those are some of the things you can do to really make sure you're predicting long-term successes. Look for those kinds of qualities and try to measure or assess them in an objective way. We all read these headlines about the war on talent or in the world that I live in, sometimes it's the struggle for tech talent. And there's this belief that talent is a scarce resource for which we're all battling. Is that true or how do we need to think about this war on talent differently? 
Yeah, I think that that um, you know it, it's a war metaphor, so obviously it has uh, you know limitations. But but I think that's right. And and you know you mentioned the tech sector. I think where we stand now in 2023, the the narrative that is so prominent in the media, based largely on the tech sector, is you know there's layoffs, there's downsizing. That is all very true in the tech sector. But you look beyond you know, and I run a technology company, so it's kind of my world as well, right? And it's my employees' world, and they see on LinkedIn, they see layoffs and that kind of thing. And it's certainly true that after a period of incredible growth, uh, this is probably a, a pretty sensible, if painful, correction in technology. But you look beyond technology, and we have customers who are in technology, but 90% of our customers are not, right? They're in a whole host of other industries. And outside of technology, and maybe a few other fields that are sort of technology adjacent, like media, et cetera, there, there is a really fundamental labor, labor shortage still going on. And it's actually getting worse, I think. And, and so I believe we're going to be faced with a labor scarcity that's going to be very long term, right? And that we're already well into it. You know, obviously, even with all the layoffs and downsizing in the technology sector, we're still at, you know, well sub 4% unemployment. And when we talk to our customers outside of the technology industry, their primary dilemma is they can't find enough qualified talent, right? They're, they're really faced with not having enough talent. And that's one of the primary sort of breaking mechanisms on their growth is they can't find enough people to do the roles they, they have open. And so I think like if you look out on sort of a 10-year time horizon and you look beyond tech, that's the... That's the biggest challenge for, for companies in terms of optimizing their talent strategy. What I'm experiencing with a number of guests on the show and organizations that I work with, and I'd be curious to get your perspective, is thinking about the talent attraction and development process is becoming a longer life cycle. It's now, how do we go not just back to universities and become a hiring brand of choice? It's going back to the thought of, internships and even apprenticeships to say, how do we cultivate our own talent pipeline? What's your perspective and are you doing any breakthrough work in that space? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I think the focus on things like apprenticeship, which, you know, we haven't talked about much until recently, right, in the, in the economy, are all a function of that basic, you know, some people would call it skills gap. I, I think of it in sort of more straightforward terms as a supply and demand imbalance in the in the labor market, right? And I think all of those solutions, some are some of which are old and some of which are are newer, are a reaction fundamentally to the fact that we don't have enough people who have the right skills to do the jobs that we have open. And another area that that's very much topical for our customers, especially the enterprise customers that really do a, a ton of hiring, is this concept of talent mobility, right? It's got a lot in common with apprenticeships and, and that kind of thing, because it's about if you have someone in an organization who maybe maybe doesn't have a path up in their current role, but based on what you know they can do, based on the transferable skills they have, might be a great fit for some, some other role in the organization. That's a conversation I was never really having with our customers five years ago. They, I didn't even know what that term meant really five years ago. And now it's very much top of mind for for chief people officers and, and people who run HR at big companies is, you know, I have this this people asset rather than thinking of it as linear in all cases, you know, how do I optimize it by giving people sort of multiple routes up? And so you hear a lot about upskilling, but you also hear about sort of redeploying people with skills if maybe their their path upwards is, is blocked in one area or is not realistic in one area. How do you kind of re redeploy them to another that might work for them as well as the organization? Did you know that 68% of workers say a hybrid workplace is their preference? 
Make hybrid work for everyone with Robin. Robin is the industry-leading flexible workplace platform for connecting people with rooms, desks, and each other. We've helped companies like Peloton, Toyota, and Hulu build better workplace experiences. Plus, we integrate with the tools you already know and love. To learn more about how we make flexible work a reality, visit www.robinpowered.com. Your comments about talent mobility remind me of a leader I used to work for who said to me, one of the ways that I'm measuring you is whether or not you are a net exporter of talent from your team. Meaning, do you find a diamond in the rough, a high potential person, then sort of hoard them and therefore force them right. into being stuck or hitting a ceiling? Or, you know, the other side of it is exactly what you describe, which is, do you see that someone has a skill where they have the opportunity to be more successful or have the next step in their career somewhere else? And I thought, what a great guiding principle related to talent mobility as leaders. Are you a net exporter of talent? Yeah, it's, it's a great way to think of the success of a leader, right? Is, is he or she developing talent in such a way that it becomes in demand and that I, I actually had a head of marketing once who was really good at that as well. And sometimes it meant people left the org and I was like, wait a minute, you know, but ultimately for the people involved, it was, it was really good. You know, he was maximizing their, he was helping develop them in a way that would make them desirable within and without the organization, right? So you're talking about measurements and metrics of winning. And that called to mind for me, your 2023 candidate experience report. You've got a whole study where you've studied the candidate experience. Tell us more about what you've discovered. People always like to know more about benchmarks and real data as opposed to just theoretical conversations. Tell us about the study and what you're discovering. Each year now, we, it's relatively recent, we've always kind of measured employer sentiment around hiring, right? And recently we kind of said, you know, let's look at the other side of the picture as well. It's, a, it's kind of a candidate's market. This is really relevant for a lot of employers. They want to know how to attract and, and retain and kind of construct their hiring process in a way that's appealing to candidates. And so I believe this is the second one we've done, the second annual one, where we look at candidate experience and, and what's important to candidates. And some of the findings are you know, pretty straightforward and maybe not earth shattering. So candidates like transparency in the process. They like timely responses. Not surprising in this market as well that having an overly long process where the candidate isn't given very frequent insights into where they are is really a death knell for a recruiting practice. I think it's really telling when you look at even some of the top employers now, and this started in tech, and now that tech is really softening, it's kind of spread out to other areas. But you know, some, some well-known employers that have great employer brands have, have had systems where they do six or seven rounds of interviews. And that's, that's going away, I think, pretty definitively. Candidates aren't putting up with it, right? They'll, they'll take another offer if you're, if you're taking that long to, to make a decision on them. So that's, that's one thing that, that definitely came out is sort of accelerating your process, keeping the candidate at the center of it. Another finding that, that sort of echoes what we were beginning to see last year is that uh, candidates, that is on the transparency piece again, candidates really appreciate knowing how they're evaluated. So, you know, one of the core parts of our product is assessments. And, you know, some HR people we talk to sometimes, you know, one of their objections is, well, I don't know if candidates are going to like this, right? It's not an outrageous thought, right? We realized at Criteria a long time ago that 
we love assessments a little more than some of our some of the candidates out there right so you know i think what came out is that the current sort of legacy hiring process gives you very little feedback as a candidate on how you're doing right sometimes you don't you sort of submit your resume or your application you you never hear back or you hear back intermittently that you've made one stage and so there's another ask for you to do something and you know uh, some of our assessments for example will come with feedback for the candidate so they get a sort of readout that's different than what the employer gets obviously but it's oriented around kind of growth and development and, and strengths and opportunities and i i think that you know what we saw in the survey was a growing number of people who kind of prefer an objective a sort of transparently objective technique for measuring them, whether it was assessments or something else like a structured interview versus just sort of submitting their resume into the ATS abyss and sort of hoping for the best, right? Not hearing much back. I think there's a lot of candidates now who who know a little bit about how the technology works at a lot of companies around, you know, sort of keywords and resumes and things like that. And and some of them are not really wanting to, to play that game. So there's not very many winners in that game, in my view. So I think that that was one of the trends, too, is like candidates will put up with a, a rigorous sort of evaluation process if they have an idea of how it works and why it's being done, because ultimately they want to be on a level playing field. And so they, they appreciate that. Imagine going to take the SAT test and then you get there and find out you have to do a painting. I mean, you would be so shocked, right? The reality is in that assessment, you're set up for success by knowing what you're going to be assessed on. And what you said there is so powerful in terms of transparency and trust in that process. People want to know what are the criteria because outside of that, you start to wonder, is it a likability contest, right? Or we mysteriously label it as cultural fit, right? We're screening for cultural fit. And what you're describing is so critical. It's, you know, share the criteria. And I think every listener can relate to that experience of going through even an intense interview process with multiple rounds, not getting the job and not getting any feedback. And you're left wondering why? That's right. Yeah. And, and don't get me started on cultural fit, because I think you're exactly right there that that's kind of a way of saying, you know, it, it's going to be subjective. Right. That's a, That's another way of saying that. So we, we like to focus on it's not it's not our invention, but we like to focus on sort of culture ad. And it's not it's not saying that culture is not incredibly important at companies. It is. It's it's a key barometer of, you know, the health of an organization and all those things. But you don't build your culture solely by looking for cultural fit, because that's often the, the analog I like to use, Karen, is in the U.S. presidential election where, you know, they sometimes give surveys of like, which candidate would you rather have a beer with? You know, and it's like it's sort of a proxy for like, which one's the most likable and which one's the most down to earth? And you could sit at a picnic table and, you know. <laughs> But ultimately, like which one you want to have a beer with should not be the criteria for running the free world, right? Like, I, I think uh, I think there's more important things there than than who the most likable is, you know. And so, yeah. So I I, I like that you picked up on cultural fit because it's a conversation customers often come to us with, and we sort of try to redirect the conversation to, yes, you should certainly avoid people who will make your culture toxic or you know be counterproductive. But let's sort of reframe that question. And speaking of toxic cultures, managers and leaders, I have to believe you have a different approach for screening great leadership candidates. And I bet everyone who's ever had a bad boss, which is everyone listening, would love to know what are the criteria on which we should all be evaluating 
great leaders and people leaders of organizations now, given we've had such a significant context shift? Yeah, yeah, it has been a big shift the last few years. You know, for managerial roles, there's some things we know that work very well, critical thinking and problem solving being being one of them, right? In general, when you're thinking about aptitude and intellectual ability, it becomes more and more relevant sort of the higher up you you get in an organization, right? So there's a minimum there's a minimum bar there, I think. There's also a series of personality traits that tend to correlate with success in managerial roles. That that has sort of been an interesting thing to watch as as sort of the paradigm of what makes a good manager culturally is kind of, I think, shifting. You know, if you look at sort of a 20-year time frame of how a good manager was portrayed in the press or in movies, you know, 25 years ago, might be considerably different than than now. And so things like assertiveness, uh, while still important, is sort of faded and, and, and given way maybe to a little bit more of an emphasis on empathy and emotional intelligence. You know, when we were sort of six to nine months into, into COVID and a lot of folks were working from home, we got a lot of questions from new prospects and also existing customers. There was a lot more interest in emotional intelligence because I think, you know, emotional intelligence for managers, right, has always been, I think, a part of the picture. It's always been important to know when your team is strained or when an individual team member is is suffering, like recognizing that can obviously be helpful. But I think the bar was raised there. I think it's harder to do that well through Zoom, right? It's it's kind of a flatter medium, right? And so knowing when your team dynamics are off or an individual is off or, or struggling or needing support can be more difficult when you're going through video versus in person. So I think in a sense, maybe some of those abilities that I think have always been a part of who, you know, what makes a successful manager are coming to the fore more in the last couple of years. And when I think about your 25 million assessments and growing that you've administered, we have listeners who aren't ready to invest yet and would probably benefit from knowing what is even one question they could ask that's new, different, refreshed, more insightful in the interview process as soon as their next interview? You know, we actually develop structured interviewing tools as well. And so our big emphasis there is making sure that the questions you ask are job related and are and are related to, you know, most employers know a few key qualities, even if they haven't like taken the time to really formally map out, like to do a job requirements analysis really rigorously. They know a couple of the qualities that are really important. And so asking any questions you can around that that sort of demonstrate real, real kind of scenarios or so we call it like behavioral interviewing that sort of are designed to measure those those qualities and how they'd be applied in practice is really good and that and that will obviously differ you know from one job to another our our big message around interviewing because you know it, there's so much evidence and and my story that I told you up front is almost an example of it right is that there's so much uh evidence that a lot of interviewers make up their mind about an interviewee in the first five minutes, right? It's something like 30% have already formed an impression about whether that is a that person's a fit or not. So I took seven minutes, so so I wasn't quite as guilty, but it's the same same kind of thing, right? And if you think about what happens in the first five minutes of an interview, it's not terribly substantive, right? It's it's like you're sort of judging the appearance, the the demeanor, maybe uh, making small talk and, and discovering some superficial things you might have in common or not. And so our big advice with interviewing is 
to do it in a structured way and make it more like an assessment. So ask the same questions of all candidates. It doesn't mean you have to be like stiff and robotic. Like you can, you can ask follow-up questions that aren't scripted or anything like that, but have three or four core questions that you're going to ask everyone and try to grade them in a rigorous way so that if, if you, Karen, have one like amazing quality, like you're super charismatic, for example, you don't want that to overweigh like the other four things you were supposed to be looking for in the candidate, right? So you want to come up with a rigorous way to grade them and, and weight it and say, if there's four things you're looking for, let's grade all the questions at, at five points or whatever. So doing it in that way helps remove a lot of bias from the process. Removing bias that is critical to a more diverse talent pipeline and a diverse workforce. Josh, what do you want your legacy from this work you're doing to be? Um, gosh, that's a great question. I, I think like what we as a company are oriented around is besides helping employers get better at hiring and helping them like build better businesses, we really feel like the approach we're taking, which is evidence-based and, and science-based, is really helping to make the world of work a little bit more fair and equitable for all. And, and I mean that on both sides, the employer and the and the job seeker. So my mission is kind of aligned with, with the companies, which is helping sort of incrementally make the, make the world of work more fair. Love that. And speaking of the world of work, people say that they miss spontaneous water cooler interactions. And that's why I have a segment on the show to replicate that experience. I'm going to ask you five quick questions. You just say the first thing that comes to mind. It's as if we're at a virtual water cooler together. Are you ready? Okay, let's do it. All right. What time of day do you do your best creative work? 11 o'clock a.m. A.m. Okay. I was going to ask a.m. or p.m. Speaking of time, imagine miraculously every day now has 25 hours instead of 24. How do you spend your extra hour? Uh, hopefully with my family. That's awesome. If they're listening, you get huge <laughs> kudos. We hope they are. If you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Wow. Probably I, I would I would have a weight issue if I did this, but probably cacio e pepe uh, is my favorite kind oh. of pasta. So, yeah. Yes. Love it. Now imagine the zombie apocalypse is coming. Who are three people you want on your team? Uh, I'm laughing because my wife has admitted that if in that scenario, I would not be one of the ones. <laughs> I don't tend to be too handy around the house, which she feels probably rightly is incredibly important in that. Actually, my in-laws are pretty, pretty good in that way. I'd probably take one of them. My son is very, my 11 year old is very handy. I'd probably uh, take him, but we don't want to get into hard family choices. So yeah, I, gosh, I'm going to have to think about this more. That's a, that's a really good question. When you can make someone with a degree like you have in French medieval history think, I mean, I feel like it's a winning day for me. Well, well, let me tell you the, the recipe for who you want in a zombie apocalypse. It's not the medieval historian. That's probably. Not yeah. It's not the podcast host either. Believe me. Last question. How can the listeners stay in touch with you and keep track of your thought leadership and what you're doing. Best way to find me is on LinkedIn in terms of, you know, try to post there on stuff related to criteria so they can check me out, Josh Millett on LinkedIn. There's also a ton of information if you're interested in kind of exploring assessments or the type of types of tools we've been talking about today. You can go to criteriacorp.com, which is our uh, main website. Awesome. Well, thanks to Josh Millett, founder and CEO of Criteria, for joining us today on Success From Anywhere. Because success is not a destination, 
Success is not a location. Success is available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Thanks for listening.